Back to the Forgecast. My name is Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. And before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. Today's sponsor is Gamerco Artisan Supplies, the place to go for your blade steels, forge kits, and burners, and they have generously extended their exclusive deal to our Australian Forgecast listeners. Using the code FORGECAST10, all one word, you'll get 10% off your order of gas forge burners and accessories and blacksmith tools. Just in time for the holiday season, certain item exclusions apply, so visit www.artisansupplies.com.au or follow Gamerco on Facebook and Instagram for more details. Cool. So, um, <clears throat> uh, what have you been up to this week, Alex? I've seen uh, that you been... finally got your gas forge burning real hot. Yeah, that's right. I have been busier than a stump tail bull in fly season this week. <laughs> I have been, got a, uh, a big live show this weekend. Um, the one of the oldest agricultural fairs in the state. And I'm going to be blacksmithing live there, so getting everything ready for that. And um, orders keep rolling in while my preparation for that happens, so that just gets thrown on the pile. So I'm going to be just as busy when it's over as well. Uh, but it's good. The extra work coming in is good, and um, the exposure at the show will always be good as well. And being a part of something that's uh, sort of a bit historical like that, doing historical blacksmithing like I do with the whole no power tool thing has been good. But like you said, I've fired up the gas forge and it's been going quite well. Um, that's the one that actually made using Gamerco uh, equipment as well. It's um, It gets smoking hot. It's, it's quite efficient, actually. Um, I was... I'm still sort of getting used to it. It's uh, I, I'm not a fan of gas forges. I don't like not being able to control the location and the amount of heat as easily as you can with something like a solid fuel forge. Um, I'm sure that 50% at least of that is just the fact that I'm used to a solid fuel forge. Um, <laughs> but it's just uh, I'm a cranky old man and I like, I'm stuck in my ways and I like my coal forge so looking forward <laughs> to going back to that but I did have to use it today because the winds down here have been phenomenal Tasmanian winds have been known to rip trees out of the ground and flip shipping containers 40 foot shipping containers um, roll them across paddocks like they're made of polystyrene and so um, obviously a solid fuel forge during that is not a good idea um, so <laughs> gas forge it was so I spent the whole day wearing bloody headphones <laughs> and um, I've got bloody molded into the side of my head from wearing them all day <laughs> but I got a lot done I, I, and got used to the forge of the process and um, yeah it was it was a productive day in the end um, so how, how about you Sam yeah, um, yeah. I, we haven't had the winds here. We've had the heat. Um, you know, the start of the week was pretty good, and then uh, moving towards Sunday, we're going to get to forty degrees Celsius uh, over here, and some nice humidity as well. So, just for uh, reference, it is currently four degrees Celsius here. Yes, buggy you. Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no. So um, it hasn't been very conducive to forging uh, weather. It's been very humid. Um, so I haven't actually been out in the forge that much this week, uh, if I'm honest. Probably not uh, 
the best thing, but uh, <laughs> you do what you have to. I have been working on some uh, some projects that I've been holding on to for a while. I finished making uh, some crucible tongs for a fellow YouTuber, Big Stack D, mm. who does metal casting and stuff like that. They came out great. Yeah, I, I followed his channel for a long time, and uh, he... Uh, <laughs> He makes his own tongs, <laughs> but he's not a blacksmith. So he makes his tongs out of uh, flat bar, three mil flat bar, uh, inch, inch by inch by eighth inch flat bar and, um, kind of bends it into shape and then bolts them all together with screws. Um, <clears throat> it works, but it looks rickety as hell. And I, it just, it always made me cringe every time I watched his show. So. I decided I'd message him and say, "Hey, mate, I have the ability to make you some tongs. <laughs> Please let when me you're, make you some When tongs. you're dealing with liquefied, non-ferrous metals, you really want some stability and precision in your work. Oh, absolutely, and you want that strength as well, because you know, like the, the three mil flat bar gets up to heat real quick mm. uh, when in contact with the crucible. So you, you're getting a lot of uh, a lot of movement in the tongs themselves, which isn't exactly conducive to good grip." No. Um, so yeah, no, it, it, it was a safety concern as well as, as any, as much as anything. So, um, yeah, so he and I had discussed that and, uh, yeah, I just winged them on my, their way to him. They should be there by the time this episode comes out, hopefully. Awesome. Uh, so hopefully we'll see them on his show. Uh, I got to use the press to do some drawing out of Tong Reigns, which was absolutely amazing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it sped the whole process up those two tongs would have taken me two days to make by hand i can just imagine at the end of spending you know five minutes drawing out the reins you probably just broke down weeping <laughs> after years of having to hand hammer out reins man I, well i made it i made the i made the larger crucible tongs out of the same stock that i made the bladesmithing tongs out of on one of my live streams mm. and it was uh, inch by half inch uh, mm. stock it's mild steel but yeah, that's it's still a lot to draw uh, out yeah i i ended up making one tong half on a two-hour live stream before i had to chuck it in <laughs> uh on the live stream so and that only had a 12 inch rain these um these crucible tongs i made them with 18 inch rains mm. um so you know it was it was an entirely different experience uh to use the press to draw them out it was just so fun I was just I sitting there watching it squish things. That's why I added more press footage than anything else in the video. It was quite lucky that you had two objects that were the same diameters as his crucibles lying around your forge. It was very lucky. Uh, it was funny because originally when I contacted him, I, I didn't know what the outside diameter of his crucibles were. So I was kind of like, I was assuming that they'd be like mine. I have a couple of crucibles and they're 90 millimeter crucibles. Uh, 90 millimeter diameter and no no no, no no much bigger yeah the smallest he has is 125 mm -hmm. uh, millimeters diameter and then the the larger one was uh 140 millimeter diameter yeah so it was is quite very quite large crucibles mm -hmm. and i just happened to find that uh, one of the fire extinguishers that i had got i actually originally intended on making that into a crucible for melting aluminium Hmm. Um, you know, it happened to be 125 and a post anvil that I'd bought a while back happened to be 140 millimeters round. So, uh, I got lucky on both of those, Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, they came so. out, they came out great. And it was a good opportunity to test a few things under the press and, uh, you know, make another 
good piece of content for the YouTube channel, and um, yeah, it, it got me working. Otherwise, I've been waiting for some new belts. I uh, made an order for some new belts uh, because I've run out of 50 grits, as I said on the last show, and I'm still waiting for them to be delivered because, you know, that's how life works. And um, while that's happening, I'm waiting for my wood supplier to get more wood in to make the handles for all those hex hawks that I forged last week. So mm. at the moment, I'm kind of stagnated because I'm waiting on deliveries of, you know, tooling and, and materials in order to continue working. Um, and in amongst that, obviously, the, the heat has got me uh, driven out of the forge. <laughs> Otherwise, so... Yeah. Uh, well, now is probably a bad time for me to point out that one of the things I did this week, I forgot to mention, was to fix the tracking system on my 2x72, and I got to try out some Cubitron belts. Mm. Woo! Fun. Yeah. A lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, I've uh, definitely, I've definitely tried those out. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing if I can try those out one day. Well, we'll um, be getting to the topic of the week, which is actually different types of grinder belts. Yeah. Um, and we'll be able to go into that in a little bit more detail very soon. Yes, but before we get there, I think we have a viewer question. We do, we do. It's from Tyler, and uh, he follows us both on Instagram. We're big fans of Tyler. And he says, Hi guys, I'm a little confused about something that has been happening to the files I try to forge. I had a nice dagger point working when the metal, about two inches of it, just crumbled. The grains in the steel were like grains of sand. I'm fairly sure I did not burn it as I had already burned a beautiful harpoon point of a knife and I was being extra careful. I snapped the end off the other end thinking maybe it was case hardened file but the color was the same on the outside as the inside. This has happened to several files I have tried to forge and I'm not sure why it's happening. If I'm doing something wrong or if it's a bad file, thanks for your help in advance. Tyler, P.S. Thank you guys for your constant positivity, your knowledge, and your encouragement. I really needed some of all that, and listening to the episode about moments of clarity this morning was an amazing boost. Thanks for that, Tyler. It's nice to, to hear that we've, uh, we've affected you like that. Thank you, Tyler. In a good Tyler. way. That's great. That's awesome. I, I'm always a fan of seeing uh, Tyler's uploads, and uh, he's recently just started a blog, I think, called The Path of Fire, uh, talking mm. about his, his uh, experience in learning blacksmithing, so... Um, you know, um, he, yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure if you want to jump in on this first before I start going off on a tangent. <laughs> yeah, well, we both know that I'm going to say something and it's probably going to be wrong and then Sam will go off on a monologue about why. Um, but <laughs> if it were me answering this question, the things that I would be asking is, the first thing would be, are you burning the steel? But it sounds like you're being extra careful about that. However... Um, if you are taking file steel, if it is actually, if they're good files, is, is more often than not W2, which for somebody that's getting into blacksmithing is a lot harder to move than something like uh, mild steel or what you may have been practicing with. And because of that, it may lead to lots of heats to actually get the shape that you want. And each time you are heating, because you're using a charcoal forge, I think, Tyler, uh, from memory, um, you are going to be getting a bit of decarburization in the steel uh, and if you're heating it, it's not going to be enough to really make steel crumble. But if you're doing 20 heats on just the tip to forge the tip and then you are hammering it into cold, uh, you know, you're letting the, the heat go out of it and still hammering on it, you can form a lot of micro fractures that way. And the steel will li literally look like it's just falling apart. It's actually just filling with micro fractures. 
Um, but that would be what I would suggest. Now uh, Sam's <laughs> going to go on to. I feel uh, you. You I guys feel, know how it works. I You've feel, been listening to this show long enough. I feel terrible because like your prediction's coming true. <laughs> 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 So yes, that is true. Hammering cold on steel will uh, form microfractures and cause things to fall apart. Although most of the time that will cause cracks. You know, like the, it will it will you know crack the blade in half or it will crack a, a tip off. It won't cause things to crumble a lot of the time. Um, it, it can look like it's crumbling when the cracks widen over time. If you don't notice that the cracks there and you keep hammering on it, they can look like they're falling apart. It's hard to tell from just yeah, an email really abs- what's going on with. Absolutely. Without without a photo, it's, it's really hard to tell. It could just be a, a multitude of cracks in a small area. Um, but one thing to remember about W2 and most hyper-eutectoid steels, which if you don't know what a hyper-eutectoid steel is, thanks to Alex, I now have a video on my channel <laughs> regarding hyper-eutectoid steels and what they are and why it matters. Uh, a lot of hyper-eutectoid steels are red short. Um, so what happens is that they have, they experience incredibly large grain growth at high temperatures, uh, when left at high temperatures for long periods of time. So it's something that I've come into, um, in, uh, forging files before as well, is that if you're getting it, you don't necessarily have to burn it. You just have to get it up to a very high temperature and keep it there for a little while. So if you leave it in the forge for a little too long, or you're taking a lot of heats at a very high temperature, you will literally hit it and it will fall apart like sand. It will literally feel like you've hit a, a ball of sand. <laughs> and if that's what's happening and you look at the end of it and it looks like there's just these giant crystals in the end of it, what's happened is that you've had it go red short. Um, it's very common when forging stuff like W2, W1, uh, D2, and stuff like that. It tends to um, happen in those hyper-eutectoid steels and those high-alloy steels. Uh, W2 is actually a relatively low alloy steel, but it, because of its high carbon content, it does tend to get red short. So um, what I would imagine is you're actually overheating the steel, just not getting it to sparkling temperature. Um, so burning it will decarburize and will cause red short as well because you're still getting it to that temperature, but you don't necessarily have to get it that hot in order to have it crumble. Perfect example of this is Alex Steele and um, Will Stelter, back when Alex Steele was in... England made a cutlass out of uh, mosaic uh, tile Damascus. They did a, a Felicietti flip. Uh, but they ended up getting the billet too hot in the gas forge. Now, they didn't burn the billet because the gas forge wasn't hot enough to burn it. Um, but what they did do was cause red short in the material and got it to crumble. Um, so, yeah, it's something to be aware of. You can do it in a gas forge. You can do it in a charcoal forge. If you're holding things at way too high a temperature... When, those, when they're those seriously high-carbon steels, they will crumble um, like, like dust. Um, so my advice is, when you're forging files, you always want to forge at the bright orange down to dull red, uh, and never in that yellow range unless you're forge welding. And a lot of the time, if you forge weld with file steel, you'll notice at the edge of your billet that the file steel is crumbling at the edges. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's crumbling on the inside of the billet, but those edge pieces that have been overheated again and again have actually gone red short outside of the billet. So, um, One yeah. thing to keep in mind with that is, as somebody who, who makes a lot of knives out of W2, it's one of my favorite to work with old files, um, is 
keep in mind especially since tyler i know you're getting new to the craft uh, when you are forging out a knife different parts of the knife are going to heat up at different temperatures a, a good example is the tip uh, if you forge your bevels the the blade edge is going to heat up at different uh, different rates uh, if you're doing one of those uh, you've everyone's seen the black blacksmith knives that sam and i both make with the integral handles um, the little curls and scrolls that you tend to put on those when you put trying to get the blade up to temperature you'll always see those start lighten up really quick as well because the material is so thin so if you're trying to avoid having this happen through overheating the steel keep in mind that the entirety of the knife is not heating up at the same rate and you can burn the tip off while trying to heat the ricasso for example if Absolutely. you're not careful and especially especially when we're considering like charcoal forges where there are hot spots uh mm. you know that move that move yeah when wherever the the air has got the least resistance through the charcoal it's going to create a heat uh like a heat vacuum through that area uh, and then if the, the charcoal falls in at that area, it's just going to find another area to come out. So what will happen is that you might stick your knife in what you think is a relatively cool place. Mm. But by doing that, you create a wind tunnel for the heat to come through. And you'll actually speed up the heating and also uneven the heating. And if you've got a deep fire pot and you stick the knife point first into the deep fire pot and your tip is right near the twir, mm. that's going to be the hottest point of the knife. And then, especially because you've got such a thin piece, you've got it the thinnest piece in the hottest part of the forge, you're almost guaranteed to burn it. Um, mm. So yeah, it, it, with solid fuel, it takes a little bit more care. With a gas forge, as Alex was saying, like one of the things he doesn't like is it heats everything. Um, there's no risk of... Well, there's mostly no risk of burning. There are certain gas forges, if they're efficient enough, will burn, for, burn steel. But... You also don't have the option of not heating certain parts. <laughs> is the is the issue? So, uh, I find I find that particularly difficult when making those um, those Celtic blacksmith knives and stuff like that, because whenever I'm forging the blade, I can't avoid but heat up the tang, and that means that whenever I'm forging the bevels, that tang is constantly working back and forth, and you can create weak points uh, in your construction by doing that. So. Yeah, thank you for the question, Tyler. It's a very, very good question. If you need any clarification, you can always feel free to contact uh, us again, and we'll try and answer in a bit more detail. For those of you who are thinking about questions uh, that you think may be quote-unquote stupid questions, there is no such thing, and we're always willing to answer questions. We may not answer it on the show, but we try and answer every question that is sent to us uh, either by email or, uh, or on the show, so... Make sure you send in those questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question. We're more than happy to hear from you. And uh, before, I, before we move from this segment, hi, Tyler, and hello to your daughter as well. She's yes. adorable. She listens, to, she listens to the show as well. So hello from Sam Towns. How you doing? The, the way song. <laughs> the way song. The Forgecast is here. <laughs> That's right. Right. All right, so let's move on to our inspirations of the week. Woo. Sam, do you want to go first? Uh, yes. So um, this week, obviously, I uh, was making crucible tongs at the beginning of the week. And like so often when I start a project um, where I, I, I'm kind of fixated on the project, so I fixated on the idea of making these crucible tongs this week. Uh, it's kind of how my mind works. I really like zoning in on stuff. So um, I decided to watch a lot of tong making videos on YouTube 
And uh, obviously he came across to Craig Turnker and all those guys. But uh, one guy who really stuck out was Mark Asprey. Mm. Uh, now, for those of you who don't know Mark Asprey, he is uh, a member. I'm not sure if he's the president of Urbana. Uh, the artisan blacksmiths of North America. Um, but he's a massively well-respected blacksmith in the community and is ridiculously talented. I just, <laughs> his videos on blacksmithing on YouTube are so in depth, so accurate. He's, he is a phenomenal guy behind the hammer. Um, he did a, he did a short excerpt video for the, um, uh, from the Anvil's Ring, uh, which is the publication that Abana puts out, um, about making a Viking broad axe, a Viking Dane axe. Um, and he, he did a, a step-by-step instructional video on how to forge one with a striker using traditional methods. And it's a fantastic video. I love that video so much. Um, but yeah, he made, he made a couple of videos on making... Um, not crucible tongs, but like box jaw tongs and stuff like that. He does a lot of welded rain tongs, uh, which is something I want to try. And Mark Asprey has been one of those guys that I've found inspirational for quite a long time. He does a lot of work with axes and stuff like that, which is something I'm always interested in. And he's very pro-traditional craftsmanship, so he really likes, you know, uh, teaching the, the basics of blacksmithing. He teaches a lot of classes around America. Uh, I think he's at, at, at every Abana meet that there is. <laughs> uh, I know a couple of people who've met him, and apparently he's a fantastic person. I, I hope to meet him one day myself. But uh, yeah, Mark Asprey. I'm not sure if he's on Instagram. Uh, um, I haven't taken actually the time to look him up. I'm, I'm terrible. I don't look people up on Instagram. I just kind of fall upon them, or, or, uh, or Alex tells me about them. <laughs> I tend to find them on YouTube and then just stay with that. And then mm-hmm. I forget. I forget that Instagram is actually a form of social media. And, <laughs> just, yeah. and then you realize a lot of these people also have Facebook pages. Well, yeah. I mean, this is it. Like, I, I, I exist. Niels you know, has two. I know. I know. It's terrible. I, I, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't even follow Niels at the time. Like, I knew about him. I've watched all of his YouTube videos, but I didn't, you know, think to look him up on Instagram. It was terrible. <laughs> So yes, I, I am slowly getting better at my Instagram. But yeah, Mark Askbury does some really good uh, YouTube tutorials on axe making, tongue making, general tool making, um, blacksmithing, traditional blacksmithing, that kind of stuff. It is fantastic. So go ahead and check him out. He has always been an inspiration for me. How about yourself, Alex? My, uh, my inspiration of the week isn't a blacksmith at all, actually. Um, my inspiration this week is my grandfather. He's, I've been uh, spending a lot of time interacting with him um, since moving down to Tasmania because he lives down here and has lived down here for, God, 40 <laughs> years or, or more. Um, he came over from England, but he's very heavily inspired me, uh, even as a kid and uh, especially now, for his work ethic. I've never seen a work ethic quite like it. And maintaining an absolutely positive attitude throughout. I mean, he's always done what is needed to be done. And he's recently undergone some fairly hefty surgeries. And he still runs a 40-acre farm himself. <laughs> he turned 80 in January. And he still runs it. He's, he's got cattle. He's got sheep. He's got chickens. And there's always jobs to do. Um, and I was lucky enough to actually get to help him run that farm for five weeks a couple of years ago after his surgery to... 
um, you know, just help him out and give him a helping hand. And I learned more from him about you know, how to live in that five weeks than I've probably learned from any other experience that I've ever had. Uh, the lying around his farm are evidence of things that he has done the hard way, like composting systems and that. And he's he's done them the hard way because that was what he had available and he does it until he can you know afford to do it an easier way and get a better system that allows him to save time on work and and move up through the ranks and he's never had to work in an office in his life he's never had to do something he hates he he just maintains this positivity and stick-to-itiveness about every project that he works on and never loses his good humor in the entire time i've ever known him i've he's he's you know gone through his share of trials just like everybody has but he's always upbeat he's always happy he plays football still he's the caps of a soccer team <laughs> and he's 80 years old he's going to outlive me he's, <laughs> That's awesome. but he's he's always happy to rib you he's always happy to you know take the piss and and make fun of you when you when you mess up but at the same time with the other hand, straight away is in to help you. He's always um, finding interesting things. He, he remembers things about people and finds things that they would find interesting and, and brings them to him. He's just relentlessly generous and happy. And it's just, he's always been the sort of person that I've wanted to grow up to be like. And even as a kid, even as a little kid, and being able to live near him again and working with my hands again and being in the country again and being in this environment again, it's it's brought it all back recently and getting to see him he, he stops by to to see what i'm doing every single week um sometimes multiple times a week and it's it's just highlighting even further just how much i you know when i'm his age if i'm lucky to get that to that age i want to be just like him and it's um you know it's, it, it's been inspiring having that sort of realization because i've been working harder in the last six months than i have probably ever worked in my entire life um, and it's because I believe that I should be able to make a living doing what I love and be happy about it and maintain that upbeat attitude. So uh, my my granddad, or I call him Pop. Everyone calls him Pop, actually, even people who aren't related <laughs> to him. Um, Pop is my, my inspiration this week and, and has been, frankly, since I was a small child. So That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's the, it's he's the farm still looks the same. <laughs> I think I, he's I had think, it longer than I've been alive, and it still looks the same. I think one of the great things uh, about you coming up with this uh, inspiration of the week idea, which you know, for those of you who don't know, Alex came up with the idea of doing this segment uh, on the show, which I wholeheartedly agreed. Um, I, I really like the fact that it makes us think about who we take inspiration from because you know, like it, it makes us appreciate those people that are our inspirations. Um, now I know that a lot of the time we're, you know, shouting out people like Mark Asprey, like Kyle Royer, like the, the well-known and prominent figures. The in masters. The, yeah. In the blocksmith community. And they are inspirational figures because, you know, many of us as craftsmen are aspiring to be like them. But, um, I, I think your, your, your inspiration this week is really hits home for, those people who inspired us before we were inspired as craftsmen. You well, know, there's like, a, it, it, there was it, a, a moment that I, I, I kind of feel like I have to say to, to describe, which which sums it up, sums him up perfectly, and sums up why he's such an inspiration. When I was living on his farm for five weeks, helping him out, 
every morning we'd get up same time have breakfast or he'd have breakfast i never eat breakfast and there was be this moment where we'd go outside and the front porch is there and the boots are all kept out there because they're all muddy and covered in shit and things and you, you stop and you put your boots on and he would always he's so accustomed to it that he just slips them on and he's ready to go i i have to sort of you know, <laughs> fuck around with them because I'm, I'm I'm a city boy, um, and I'd I'd looked up this one day and it was this beautiful morning, crisp clear morning, and his farm is is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, I've ever had the, the the luck to witness, and it still is to this day. It takes my breath away every time I see it. The the rolling hills and the forests and the sky and the snow-capped mountains in the background. It's just its phenomenal. But he just... There was this moment where the sun just hit, hit him. And he I could see he just took a moment before he started his day where he just looked out at his farm and there was just nothing but pride. Like, when he got it, it was just a bare block of land with a shed on it and he turned into that himself. Mm. And... You know, the fence posts there are still the original fence posts that him and my nan put in themselves by hand 40 years ago. And that moment of of just zen peace of, of what he'd created, I realized in that moment, I, I want to have that one day. Yeah. Not his. I want my own. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's something that all of us who work with our hands aspire to is mm. to to look upon our creation and be happy right mm. like I, you know i, I think I, i've never met a person who makes stuff who just wants it to be just good enough right and and truly loves the craft like there there are people out there who make stuff that just want it to be just good enough so they can sell it or just good enough so that it works but a lot of the time there are, you know, most of the people that I know tend to look at their work and want it to improve, want to be happy with their work. And, you know, they, they have pieces that they're always been proud of, you know, they'll always bring out, you know, this is my first, or this is my, you know, this was the best from a certain year. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that we all aspire to. And it's fantastic that, you know, like he can look out across what he has accomplished uh, and I think that's something that's missing from a lot of our lives. Uh, you know, when I worked in security or when you worked uh, in game theory is that w uh, most of the work that we did was intangible. Mm. Uh, you know, it's it's such a common thing. Uh, so many people that I've spoken to, they talk about their experiences and why they came to blacksmithing or why they came to carpentry. And they always lament the fact that when they were in their previous job or whenever they were, whatever they were doing previously, was completely intangible. You know, you went home and nothing seemed different. Yeah. Um, you know, if you did your job well, no one knew it happened. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, that, that really drains a person when you can't see the physical impact of your work on your surroundings. Whereas, you know, our craft and, and those crafts that you work with your hands, at the end of the day, we have something. Even if we failed to make what we wanted to make, we have a physical embodiment of the effort that we've put in for the day. Especially in the case of with steel, it's something that will outlive us. Well, yeah, that's it. I mean, the, the tools that we make now can be handed on generations down. Like, you know, I, one of my favorite uh, things is people who are still using tools that they got handed from their grandparents' grandparents. Mm. You know, <laughs> I love that stuff. Um, so yeah, but the coming back to your inspiration by your grandfather, 
I think it's really important that we all take time to appreciate those people who inspire us in our day-to-day lives, rather than just focusing on the, the you know, prominent figures in our community. While they are important, I think those people who have a direct impact and a direct contact with us are incredibly important as well. Uh, sometimes th- those, those messages of, you know, just stay happy. That's it. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of people forget to just enjoy themselves. And Pop likes to stop by just to make sure, are you still, are you happy? Are you enjoying yourself? He, he'll straight up ask you. Yeah. As, as long as you're happy, he'll say, you know, he just, he constantly reminds you. And a lot of people forget. They forget to enjoy themselves. Absolutely. So. Well, yeah. yeah I mean, that, that got a little bit off on a tangent. Thank you very <laughs> much for sharing that though. Cause that's, that has, you know, given me, given me the lump in the throat, you know, um reminds me of me with my grandfather and i'm sure a lot of our listeners will identify if not directly with your story but with the idea most of us have had one of those figures in our lives that that kind of put us on the path we are on um so yeah but uh with that being said i think we should work into tool time tool time and uh, this week is a subject that uh, we kind of briefly touched on in another um, episode when talking about grinders. Um, and I think a lot of people have uh, asked us for clarification on a few things about belts, abrasive belts. Not for tool time. That's our topic of the week. Oh, that's our topic of the week. Sorry, I'm getting confused now. That's right. Tool time. Oh, that's right. We're doing twisting rope wrenches for... Twisting wrenches. God damn, yeah. man. I am so off the ball right now. <laughs> That's all right. That's what I'm here for, to keep you, just keep you in line. That's it. Uh, I blame Alex. It was his emotional story that got me completely confuddled. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, twisting wrenches, very, very important. And they will be important to our listeners when they hear about the new segment at the end of the show. But more on that later. Uh, twisting wrenches come in all different shapes, sizes, and flavors. You know, mm. some people just use a spanner. Some people mm-hmm. uh, make <laughs> make custom ones. If you're like me, you find an old monkey wrench and weld a bit of rebar onto the top of it. Mm. Um, a lot of people do that actually, because monkey mo- the old monkey wrenches usually had smooth faces on them rather yeah, than serrated doors. ones, which is really good. Um, but some people, and uh, I'm, I myself am in this camp quite often, will just use the tongs that they put the stock into the into the vice with. I mean, if you can get a good solid lock on the piece, you could twist with it. Mm-hmm. I've done it with scrolling tongs before. Yeah, I've I've seen people who've uh, literally made their own almost like a turning fork you know like a, a fork used for scrolls mm. um but they've made it to su- to size of the material that they're going to turn made their own spanner basically mm. uh, and if they're doing a lot of t- twisting of a, of a very specific diameter uh, john because, switzer does that yeah you know because you can have a handle that's you know a, a meter long and, and get some real leverage on it um, I think I think one of the most recent ones I've seen was a guy who was doing hand twisting of like uh, inch inch square. Mm. <laughs> and you want some really long <laughs> arms on that twisting wrench. Well, it's worth noting that actually because it's not linear. The difficulty in which it it takes the amount of force it takes in which to twist stock. Oh no, it's, it's ex- exponential. It's exponential, <laughs> and a lot of beginners don't realize this because when you're a beginner, you start out with you know 
eighth inch stock or or you know all the way up to you might get to like half inch stock Ooh, Ooh. Uh, and, and and you start realizing just how much harder um that becomes to move and shape but nothing quite sums it up until you try and twist something and like sam was saying when you have inch square and you are trying to twist that you <laughs> lock it up in the vice and then you go <laughs> to move it and you go oh hang on a second <laughs> Even at welding temperature, that that stuff just does not move. Like yeah, so that's that's why I welded the uh, the rebar under the top of my my <laughs> yeah. monkey wrench because you need to get both arms in there and just bear down on it. I mean, uh, yeah, and, I, yeah. When when Alex uh, suggested the topic, you know, I kind of pointed out to him that I don't use a twisting wrench, quote unquote, um, mm. in my shop because I don't do a lot of twisting, and most of the twisting that I do is you know, sub 10 millimeters or sub three eighths inch, mm. um, you know, on the, on the tongue, on the, uh, on the ends of my bottle openers or, you know, on the, uh, tangs of my blacksmith's knives and stuff like that. And so for the most of that, I'll just lock it up in the vice and use a set of tongs or I'll use a shifting spanner. So, you know, like a, a, a shifter. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, the, the usefulness of, twisting wrenches especially double-handed twisting wrenches like the one that you talked about and specifically the ones with the the flat jaws because i I get a a few people who have talked to me about it and they've said oh i've got this pipe wrench and i'm gonna i'm gonna do and i'm like don't please maul the inside Uh, i've been i've used I, i in the past when i first started when i first did my first twist i used a set of um of tongue and groove uh pliers you know, those adjustable size pliers, mm-hmm. you open them up and you slide the jaws apart. Yep. And they've got those really big teeth on the inside. Mm. And I didn't realize at the time, you know, being that I was a beginner, that when I clamped down on that thing with my hand and wrenched it, that what it was going to do was, like, tear the corners off the, off the That's steel. That's it. <laughs> so, another, thing, a lot, another thing a lot of people don't uh, factor in is how much, especially on the thinner materials, uh, if you're using a one-handled twisting wrench, it'll actually make your stock wobble all over the place and getting it straight again takes, a, you know, a couple of lumps of wood to really <laughs> knock that back out without affecting the twist so with having a two-handed wrench actually mitigates that problem quite a bit yeah it's, it's very much so i mean i use the when i use the single-handed spanner or when i use the tongs i've practiced to the point that i can keep most of my twists straight but then again mm. i'm only doing twists over a two-inch length you know yeah. or, or you know maybe a three-inch length if i'm feeling adventurous when you do your specifically very long twists it's almost unavoidable to have it buckle in some places, mm. even with a two-handed wrench. But with a single-handed yeah. wrench, you've got no hope. No hope whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna you're gonna fold that thing like an accordion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you can actually see in my uh, recent hairpin video that the trick to actually straightening a, a twist out without damaging it, and it's literally beating it with a w- bit of wood. You yep. lay some wood down your anvil lay the piece on it and then slowly rotate it while whacking it with another bit of wood and it creates an awesome light show yeah Um, (laughs) it makes you feel like a million bucks it's great great for demos uh you know that's why i always have a wooden mallet in my shop is Mm. you know i I make a a very rough wooden blacksmith's mallet not not like you think of when you think of like a carpenter's mallet no this is just a log with a handle (laughs) and that's specifically for straightening twists and straightening blades and stuff 
where I don't want to mar the surface of the material. Because, you know... Brass even, hammer will only do so much. Well, I mean, yeah, brass is... You know, cold brass is way harder than hot steel. Yeah. Um, you can you can forge with a brass hammer. You can forge with a copper hammer. Mm. Uh, hell, I, I've known of people who can forge with a Delrin hammer. You know, <laughs> with, with a plastic hammer. Uh, provided you've got high enough heats and you don't mind the smell of burning Delrin. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's got to have a hobby, I suppose. It is possible. So, you know, like th- this is the thing, is that steel at significant heat is softer than pretty much anything except wood. Uh, and even, you know, even wood can dent steel, especially if it's quite thin. Yeah. If you're using a bog oak <laughs> thing to, <laughs> you know, some lignum vitae. Use pine. Just grab some pine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my grab most- some re- stringy bark. My most recent, uh, mallet that I made for my YouTube channel actually ended up splitting. And when I went to replace it, instead of going around making a handle and drilling a hole, I, I just like took a 90 by 90 or, f- um, basically a four by four. And then whittle the handle onto an end of it, so it's a club, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's my that's my straightening mallet, and that'll eventually wear out, and I'll just make another one. I literally just looked around and found an old two by four off cup, <laughs> and just it's it's huge. It's much bigger than I needed it to be, but it you know it looks good on the video. <laughs> well, yeah, that's it, and and again, it's really good for demos. If you're doing like a demo at a, a live show or something, mm. you know, getting a getting a twist nice and hot, even if you don't need to straighten it. Taking the time to do that just looks impressive because you have mm. fire spurting out everywhere. It's just uh, like when you take black uh, black steel and show everyone, you'd think this is cold, right? And then drape some paper over it. Yeah, it was a woof. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I love doing that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's it's um, it, it is a very viable tactic. But yeah, going back to twisting wrenches, uh, having smooth jaws on whatever you're using to twist is incredibly important. Incredibly so. Um, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're using tongs, whether you're using a spanner, whether you're using anything. If it's got gription on it, if it's got teeth on it, it's going to mar your work. It's going to show up in the final piece. And some people might not worry about that, but I personally don't like a twist that has a spanner mark at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not part of your brand. No, no. I, you know, there are certain tool marks I'll allow, but there are certain tool marks I want to avoid. Yeah. Right. Speaking of things that can very quickly leave marks and Mars in your work, <laughs> two by 72 belts. Now, we actually mentioned this a couple of episodes ago that uh, suggested that we could do an episode on the types of 2x72 belts that are on offer Mm. um, out there in the market and what they're used for. And we actually got quite a bit of feedback from people saying that they would love to hear that. Uh, Now, I'm fairly new to the 2x72 game myself. I was always doing everything on a 1x30 because I do quite small projects. Sam, however, with his shiny fire ant, um, uses all sorts of belts i have have tried almost every belt on the market that's right and has things to say on all of them oh mate yeah i've got i'm full of opinions you should know this by now but let's start at the ground floor um shall we the basic first thing that most people get especially when they build a franken grinder like i've got is your stock standard uh chinese made alox belts Aluminium uh, oxide. Got a lot yeah, of Yeah, that's right. The sort of thing that uh, the, the grit on it lasts about five seconds. Yeah. Um, and they they love to snap bang on you and, and slap you across the face. So uh, It keeps you alive. Yeah. 
<laughs> so, I mean, a lot of people getting started in blacksmithing is something important. This isn't just limited to 2x72s. Two, two like, you know, any any belt grinder is going to have a variety of... Even um, the one by 30 you can get zirconia belts for, oh, strapping yeah. belts for, you can get the works. I think you can even get ceramics for them now. Yes, you um, can. So, you know, like... Nose, though. I, I had a Hafco Woodmaster, you know, like a, a, a 4 by 4 by 60 or 4 by 48 um, yeah I think it was a 4 by 48 uh, wood linisher basically and that had even that had uh, zirconia and aluminium oxide to choose from mm. and one of the big things to remember about aluminium oxide is the reason they touted it as a really good wood cutting um, material is because it's very very hard and very very sharp uh, but it's also very very brittle uh, and the reason that it's terrible for steel is because at the high speeds that you're impacting the steel on a, on any kind of grinder, the uh, shards of aluminium oxide, no matter what kind of uh, glue it's got, are just going to shatter and become smaller and smaller, and you're eventually going to end up with basically nothing uh, trying to grind steel, which ends up yeah heating up really quickly. Even, so, even when the grit's fresh, aluminium oxide heats up the steel, especially you'll notice this on knife grinding like you would not believe. It is oh, yeah. just mental how quickly it will burn you. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the big thing is that aluminium oxide has never been touted as a really good steel removing mm. um, grit. Like, I still use Alox. Uh, you know, funnily enough, I, I, I do have some Alox belts in my shed, but they're 240 grit belts. And one of the advantages of the Fire Ant is that I have a VFD, so I can turn it right down, you know, to about a thousand surface feet per minute and, you know, take my time with it. Because 240 grit Alox actually gives a nice finish if you're doing something like a stonewash finish. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and they last long enough that I can probably get one blade out of a belt, mm. which is terrible if we're talking about the higher end belts. But for a cheap Alox, I pay $5 a belt. So, you know, like, it, it's not an unreasonable price mm. for, for what I'm using it for. But I wouldn't suggest that you buy aluminium oxide for your knife grinding. Unless you're doing a lot of handle stuff. Like, if you're doing axe handles and stuff, mm. buying alox is going to save you a whole ton of money because they're designed for wood. Mm. Um, so, you know, keep your ceramics and your zirconia for your steel and, and buy some alox for your handles when you want to do your handle shaping. So, you know, they have a place in the workshop. It's just that I don't suggest them being the primary uh, belts that you have in your workshop. <laughs> no. And as Alex said, you do get what you pay for. If you buy the really cheap brand Chinese stuff from eBay, the uh, the tape that they use to, to or, or the glue seam that they use um, is not always the strongest. Yeah, and it's not the greatest. Especially at the high-powered grinders like my Fire Ant, which is one of the fastest off-the-shelf grinders there is. At 7, no, nothing per tests the capabilities <laughs> of your sphincter quite like a 2x72 belt releasing at high speed. <laughs> especially especially a low grit 2x72. Like a 36 grit slap yeah, to the face. <laughs> I, I, I wish I'd got a photo of the time that I was grinding a blade with a 36 grit belt and the belt let go and I had perfect, like almost like a barcode on my forehead. Yeah, you from, got a bit of road from rash. The, from, the, from the belt. <laughs> I jumped so far backwards, I think I ran outside the door. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, if you're lucky, the belt doesn't snap. It'll slip off the, uh, the wheels and it will run out the door. 
Yeah, I, I, that's actually always fun to do. If you put enough pressure on my fire ant, the, the motor won't stop. Like a two horsepower motor running three phase power through uh, a single phase converter, you can't stop that motor. No. Like you could try, but you're not gonna. <laughs> yeah, that's um, but if you put enough pressure on it, it will actually drag the um, the tracking wheel down to the point that it'll throw the throw the <laughs> throw the belt. I actually used to do it on purpose to people who used to come into my workshop just to terrify them. <laughs> so look at this. <laughs> so after the Alox, really the next step up from that would be ceramic. Zirconia. No, Zirconia. No, Zirconia, really, yeah. Zirconia, so the the hierarchy kind of goes, you know, Alox, Zirconia and then um, ceramic. Mm. For as far as steel removal goes. Yeah. Um, there are, there are, you know, arguments as to which one is better for finishing and stuff like that. Most people agree, or most that I've seen agree that ceramic is not great for surface finishes. Um, but they're the best for material removal. But yeah, zirconia is really good. It wears down a lot less fast than the aluminium oxide because the crystals are a lot stronger. Mm. Um, they're, they're harder, they're also stronger than the aluminium oxide. You do get, also get silicon carbide belts, but that's very uncommon. Zirconia um, also doesn't heat the steel quite as much as, uh, Alox. It'll still, you'll still burn yourself, obviously, oh yeah. but well, it's, any, it's not quite as nightmarishly fast. Any, any abrasive will, uh, will eventually provide some form of friction to mm. create heat. But yeah, zirconia, be, because the zirconia grit stays sharp for longer, um, you get less friction and more cutting, which means that, you know, the more cutting you get, the, the less burning you get. Mm. Um, and that's why, you know, like as far as heating goes, aluminium oxides at the top <laughs> and ceramics are at the bottom is because ceramics are the hardest and they are the best cutting belts. So therefore they heat less fast. And it's not just a matter of personal safety with, you know, burning your fingers while you hold the belt there. I mean, if you're doing post heat treat grinds, you can ruin your temper. Absolutely. Uh, if you are not careful, especially on a nice thin blade, uh, it's, it can happen very quickly if you're not careful. Yeah. If you're making like kitchen cutlery and stuff like that, it's incredibly important to have fresh, hard, fast cutting belts because most of the time you're doing all of your grinding post heat treat. Like you don't mm. pre-grind a kitchen knife because it would be too thin and mm. you just either break it or warp it to, to death. So yeah, having, having the fresh belts that cut really quickly means that you're not going to get that heat in the blade, uh, which is very important. But yeah, so as far as grits go, those are the three main ones that you're going to come across, um, you know, and, and various brands thereof. Um, and there are so many brands. Oh, so many. I mean, do you want to do? Do we want to go into a couple of the? Cause, well, <laughs> uh, let's go into the other the other types of belt, I suppose, because there are also stuff like finishing belts. Yes. Um, um, I, I one of the uh, ones that I I use quite a bit when I'm finishing an edge is a stropping belt, which is just. Uh, leather literally just a leather belt that goes on there you can load up with compound and strop with um i actually have a new one that's made of uh, cotton it's very thin that i have yet to try but that's more of a surface finish rather than a stropping belt uh, leather a power stropped leather on an edge will get you uh, <laughs> a scary edge very <laughs> very quickly once you train yourself up and how to use it right um, but it's it's a belt that most people don't think of. A lot of people do their stropping by hand. I'd do it by hand on smaller knives, but if I'm doing sort of production 
a level knife making of mass producing something i put it through the power strop every time and it gives me a beautiful beautiful razor edge and removes burrs <laughs> which is always good yeah it's, i mean they're very reliable for um for removing burrs and for giving you a usable factory edge like mm. they're not going to give you the best edge ever that's uh, it I, nothing I beats to, hand sharpening I, I tend to find that they tend to round out the edge a little bit more than i would like for a lot of you know like the the super fine cutting blades that you want like woodworking blades but mm-hmm. for for a usable knife edge um stropping belts are great and also uh, if you want a cheat on how to do that without buying a leather belt um you can turn a you know 240 grit or something like that i suggest jflex but um you don't have to it can be a cotton backed one uh turn it up uh, turn it inside out and put it on your grinder with the grit facing the wheels uh and use some polishing compound on the back of the belt um, mm. I've, I've done that before and it works just as well. Um, I tend to use the higher grits cause they don't scar up my wheels. <laughs> yep. Uh, my wheels don't get scarred up anyway cause they're, um, they're case, they're case hardened aluminium. They've got this, uh, nitriding, uh, case hardening on them. So they're almost bomb proof. Right. But, um, yeah, the, the, that's a, a good way if you don't have a leather belt or you can't find one for sale, you can just turn a low grip belt upside down and, uh, use that. But um, you've also got stuff like Scotch-Brite belts. Yes. Um, now, it's, it's actually a relatively new thing to me, Scotch-Brite belts, because when I originally came in, like came across Scotch-Brite, obviously you had the, the hand pads, you know, the, the scouring pads that you'd use for washing your... Uh, your... Scotch-Brite, no scratch, scrub, scrub sponge. <laughs> That's the one. Um, and then when I started getting into like hammer making and stuff like that, I came across a lot of people who were using Scotch-Brite mops on their bench grinders to do hammer face finishing. Mm. And I know, for instance, that Kyle Royer actually uses a Scotch-Brite mop for some of his fitting polishing, um, you know, on, on the curved surfaces and stuff like that. He's quite fond of using that as well. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was kind of interested when I heard about uh, Scotch-Brite belts, and I have yet to get my hands on any. I'm planning on getting a few very soon. Um, just to test them out. I don't really like machine finished blades anyway. I'm a hand sanding guy. Everyone knows that. Uh, <laughs> it's your, it's your brand. <laughs> it's my, it's my thing. But, um, yeah, Scotch Brite belts are a thing and I've seen some photos from some people who use them and they look fantastic. Like, um, especially cause you can get the different grades of Scotch Brite from very That's coarse right. to very fine. They're a very useful surface finishing belt. Um, I'm looking forward to trying them out on hammers and stuff like that for a really nice fine machine finish because those are one particularly thing hammers especially that i don't mind machine finishing (laughs) i'm looking forward to trying them on some uh satin finishing one day because um after hearing you talk about doing achieving satin finishes in our episode on steel finishes uh doing that by hand sounds like awful amount of work <laughs> but i love satin finishes my everyday carry knife is actually a se zancudo it's one of my favorite pocket knives and uh it has a beautiful satin finish on it and i've always ever since getting that i've been a fan of satin finishes but then finding out the work involved i'd rather just let a machine do it. <laughs> well yeah i mean scotch right will give you a fantastic sa- um sa- uh, satin finish the only problem I find with Scotch Brite, um, especially when I, in the work that I do, is that they tend to decrisp lines. So if you have very crisp lines on your work, mm. uh, if you run a Scotch Brite belt or a Scotch Brite mop or anything like that over them, what happens is they tend to wash out all of those crisp, crisp lines. 
That's just oh. all the more reason to create a nice full flat grind to finish the uh, to to show off that beautiful satin finish that you've got. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> but um, on top of that, you also have belts like cork belts. Um, now, this is something you've introduced me to just recently. Yeah, so um, cork belts are a. I think we talked about them on the steel finishing at the end of the episode. I was kind of rushing through it, um, but they are a. They're basically a, a standard grinding belt, but instead of uh, grit in the surface, they have cork, which is then um, kind of imbued or has is co- yeah is coated or loaded with uh, a grit. So um, they come in like 400, 600, 800. I think they go all the way up to 2,000 uh, grit cork belts, and they're a lubricated belt. So they're you know they are a belt that you would normally use with like WD-40 or something like that to provide a surface finish. And I actually had a couple of them a while back uh, that I was testing out, and they are fantastic for surface finishes off the belt. Mm. Um, the Ricca- Riccardo Manolfi, which is uh, an Italian bladesmith that I follow who made, who makes a lot of stock removal knives in the style of Bob Loveless, um, recently did a dagger, uh, a double-edged blade, which he finished with a cork belt. And I sent the photo to Alex just to show him <laughs> what they were capable of. And it was practically a mirror finish mm. off the belt. It was a fantastically shiny finish off the belt. So... Cork belts are definitely one of those things that, um, if you're interested in machine finishes, are something definitely worth looking at. And more recently, uh, I've been a huge proponent of Trizact belts, the Trizact Gator Grit specifically. To get those finishes, those sweet finishes. Oh, well, they're, uh, the ones I've got at the moment are A35 Trizact. They're a 400 grit equivalent, and um, they basically have pyramids of grit on them. And these pyramids of grit have quite large gaps between them. And originally, when you look at the belt, you might think it's a very aggressive belt. But the grit itself is a very, very fine grit. It's 400 grit. The reason they have those gaps in them, I've come to find out, is so that it air cools the blade as you're grinding. Mm. Because it creates its own wind current. And that's something that I've really noticed with the belt, is that when you wind up the grinder, you get a very high-pitched whine, almost like a turbine, and the, you feel the air in front of you. Like, no, even when you're running a normal belt, you'll feel the air. But with the Trizac belt, you really feel it. And um, that means that you can grind a super high grit. Because one of the big problems with grinding fine grits is that they tend to be very uh, flush to the surface of the belt. Which means that you get more surface contact, which means you get more friction. Hmm. Uh, in this case, you're lowering the, the friction because you're, you know, you've only got the peaks of these pyramids. But you've also got these gaps creating this air current, which actually air cools the steel as you're grinding so you get these really nice even smooth 400 grit finishes off the belt and i have to say that if i was going to do finishes off the belt a trizac finish would be where i'm at (laughs) because i I, i've done it on a couple of knives now and i'm super impressed with how easy it is to do and how even they come out and how long lasting they are so you know like one of the big things is a 400 grit belt normally only lasts me one blade I've been running the same Trizact A35 belt for uh, three months, four months. And that raises a very good point because you hear a lot of people say, well, I can't afford good belts. I have to stick with, you know, my shitty Chinese Alox belts and things because I can't afford to buy the the fancy Norton Blazers or Cubitrons or Trizacs and things like that. Um, But when you think about the amount of use you get out of it, a lot of these, um, you know, quote-unquote more expensive belts 
end up costing you less in the long yeah, run. You have to absolutely. think about how much use you get out of it before you have to strip it off and throw it away. Um, and if you measure it like Sam would in knives, uh, it's a lot easy, uh, easier way to actually work that out. But um, it's really, if, the, if you're using the cheap Alox belts, you may be able to get them for five bucks each. But if you're getting one knife out of each grit <laughs> that you go yeah. through, then you're probably going to spend $20 in belts just on getting one knife up to spec. Absolutely. And so... Um, why not just spend 20 bucks on a nice <laughs> a nice quality belt yeah, and then I mean, use it for multiple projects? I mean, Niels Vandenberg, when we had his episode, was talking about a Korean one that he's using that he's been using for six months at 36 grit, and it still cuts like a fresh 36 grit. And that's mm. Niels using it. Nobody yeah. grinds as hard <laughs> as Niels. No, no one on earth. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing, is I, I can... I've used aluminium oxide 60 grit belts because most of the stock removal I do is at 60 grit rather than 36 because 36 grit I find is a little too aggressive, removes material too quickly and also is a hard finish to get through even with the subsequent grits. Mm. So I tend to start with a 60 grit and I can grind, you know, an inch of material off the hammer face with a 60 grit um, belt in, you know, half a second with my fire ant because it's <laughs> so fast. Um, but I've used aluminium oxide 60 grits and, uh, recently I had an order of, uh, Norton 60 grit belts or 50 grit belts. Um, cause Norton doesn't do 60. It only does 50 for some reason. That's um, how we roll. Yeah. So that's it. Norton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, one of the, one of the big things was that, uh, I could get about five belts, uh, five Alox belts worth of work out of a single Norton blaze belt. Hmm. Um, and the Norton Blaze Belt was costing me three times an Alox Belt. Mm. So it's right? cheaper like was, to go Norton. I could buy an I could buy a fifty grit or forty grit or sixty grit Alox Belt for five bucks a belt, whereas the Norton ones were costing me fifteen bucks a belt. Unless I bought more than ten, in which case I'd only be paying thirteen bucks. Mm. So realistically, I was saving vast amounts of money, getting increased cutting ability um, for longer periods of time. Um, just for that little bit extra money. So realistically, you're not saving yourself anything by buying 10 Alox belts when you make your next order instead of buying three Norton belts. Hmm. You know, you, you're not really helping yourself. Now, we were talking about Cubitron earlier, which um, Alex has been lucky enough to get a couple, and I'm looking forward to, to getting a few myself eventually. Um, but I've heard some rave reviews about them, and then there's even rumors that they may cut better than Norton. So... Well, the if, interesting thing is, it's interesting what you said about how you try, try and avoid doing your shaping at 36 grit, or the profiling at 36 grit, because it leaves uh, gouges that are hard to get out. I mean, it is a, it is a rough grit. Um, however, the way I've been researching the Cubitrons um, while I'm using them, and I honestly get a, about a 60 grit equivalent finish on a Cubitron 36 grit. Mm. Um, it's it's actually very very neat and i was looking up why and it's because when you get something like an alox belt the distribution of the uh, uh, distribution and shape of the grit is fairly random yeah, across very. <laughs> whereas on a cubitron it's all exactly the same it's uniform. identical and lined up and perfect so you get this really uniform scratch pattern across it uh, and it actually i thought it was wearing down really quick Mm. Uh, because I was putting it on W2 and I thought, you know, because 
if you start at 36 grit and you on an Alux belt, and after using it for a while, it eventually will turn into a 60 grit belt, and an 80 grit belt, and then a 120 grit belt. Yeah, it uh, takes about five seconds. <laughs> yeah, and I I honestly thought it was doing that because the finish was that good. But then I, upon examining the belts, no, it hadn't even touched it. It was yeah, just right. that good of a scratch pattern. Um, mm. And so it's it's interesting to know the composition of the actual the construction of the belt does make a difference on that. Absolutely, and I think I think that's the same with the Trisact because they've gone to these pyramidal uh, nodules on the belt, and they're all evenly spaced and they're all evenly, you know, kind of laid out. I think that uh, that that could be attributed to also how they get such a fine and even consistent finish off the belt. So you know, again, belts are one of those things, and we're always going to say it on the show: if you can't buy anything else, a tool is better than no tool. Hmm. But if you can afford the tool, go for the best tool you can afford because you get what you pay for. And with belts, that's no different. Yeah, um, absolutely. There are, the reason that companies sell the belts for what they do is because they've done the research and they do the, the, the development to get the best belt they can for the price that they're giving you. Mm. Um, we're lucky we're actually in this era where blacksmithing and bladesmithing is becoming more popular because uh, it's driving the market to lower prices. Um, because now it's a very competitive market. And we've got and, people trying and to... And to innovate to come up with things that the competitors aren't doing. Absolutely. I mean, I'm really interested to hear about these Starkey belts that, um, that mm. Nils was talking about. Because yeah. if, if what he says is true, which I have no reason to doubt him... I am keen to get some, my hands on some of them. <laughs> well, that's right. Even just for the main shaping, to have one that lasts that long. Oh, yeah. Then, it was, know, just incredible. I mean, this, is, this is the thing, is that I'm not just a bladesmith. I make axes, I make hammers and stuff like that. And a lot of the work that I do, especially on my Hex Hawks, is stock removal um, after forging. So having those belts that would last a long time and allow me to do a lot of stock removal on hammers and axes and stuff like that uh, is incredibly valuable. So, yeah, I greatly appreciate that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but, you know, from a bladesmith's, bladesmith's perspective as well, it's incredibly useful because half of the stuff we do is grinding. Well, that's right. <laughs> you, spend, the- you, spend, you spend 20% of your time forging and the rest of your time grinding and handle fitting. Unless you're working on your um, primal line. Yeah, well, this is true, uh, which I definitely should be doing. I should be doing some more bladesmithing. I've been so stuck in with tool making and axe making and hammer making i have not worked on a blade in months make one out of <laughs> some hex stock you'll feel right at home <laughs> uh, don't tempt me although <laughs> apparently this weekend i might be making a full tank hunter knife out of the 80 layer damascus pattern that i made on the weekend previous uh, on my live stream so it looks like i'll be making a blade this weekend that sounds exciting. Well, mm. we will get into our final segment, which is actually a new segment. We are introducing Ooh. the challenge of the week. Yeah. Now, this is obviously optional, but you know, many of people listening are looking for inspiration. We hear all the time that you guys are getting inspired by. So we want to challenge you. Every week, we are going to come up with a challenge and we are going to sometimes give you an easy one, sometimes give you an intermediate one. Sometimes we'll give you a hard one. Although, wait, we'll hold off a little bit before we get into this. Because, you know, (laughs) we want to inspire you, not scare you. (laughs) The the intent is to give you something to do that's going to take you, you know, uh, only a few minutes in the forge. It's not going to take you an entire week to make. Uh, And it's something that you can try out without having to put too much effort in. 
But it gets you out in the forge. It gets you swinging a hammer. It gets you doing something. And maybe uh, trying something new that you haven't yeah. tried before. Or have been too, too afraid to try. And now that we've actually called you on it, you're going <laughs> to uh, have to go and do it. So uh, this week, it's all about twists because we talked about twisting wrenches. And many beginners, when they're forging, love doing twists because it, you're just watching that scale pop off and it looks great. And there's a lot of different experimentation you can do with twists. But many beginners do not go out and try a Rubik's twist. Come so on, that- baby, do the twist. Do the Rubik's hey. twist. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So, a Rubik's twist, if you don't uh, are currently unaware, is a chisel twist, all four sides chiseled, uh, and then op- opposing corners actually have uh, sort of uh, p- uh, perpendicular grooves cut with either an angle grinder or a chisel, if you're that patient, or sometimes a hacksaw. Um, and when you do the twist, it actually pops out to the opposing corners like little cubes mm. uh, either side of it. It's a very, very attractive twist. Not particularly comfortable as a handle, but uh, really, really good for key change, pendants, or just as an eye catcher. Because as soon as you, um, you know, wire wheel that sucker up and get the darks dark and the highs light, it's uh, it just looks amazing. Uh, actually... Uh Brandon uh, from County Lion, oh, sorry, not County Lion Forge, Frontier Forge, uh, used to make a bottle opener with a Rubik's twist handle, which he would call his paradise bottle opener because he would make it was only a two Rubik's twist, so it was only two Rubik's, and okay. he would uh, he would punch the die, um, you know, pieces like a di- piece, a pair of dice. Paradise, paradise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, He he thought it was really cool, so I I really thought like that idea as well, making the Rubik's twist into two dice on the twist. Yeah, Uh, well, there you go. That was quite cool. So what we're going to do is uh, get you to show your work. You know, if you if you try it, we want to know about it. So definitely uh, tag us on Instagram. We'll eventually start a hashtag that you can put on it if you do try any of our challenge of the weeks. Um, challenges of the week, whatever the correct grammar is. Um, we, could, we could do, for this week, we can just make it hashtag Forgecast Challenge. Yeah, there you go. Um, hashtag Forgecast Challenge. It'll we're we're going to have we're gonna have to change it, or we're gonna have to change it a little bit every week, so that we can actually see which ones from the, that week. Otherwise, we're just gonna be digging through. <laughs> very uh, true. Very true. But uh, yeah, hashtag Forge, Forgecast Challenge. If you're interested in taking out the challenge, we're really interested to uh, to see your work. We'll be posting up images of our own challenge pieces on the Forgecast page, or at least I will, because I'm planning on making a piece. Because I've it, never made a Rubik's twist. I'm, uh, you know, I'll be honest and say. I have never made a Rubik's twist, so I'm planning on making one. To be uh, honest, it's one of those things that no matter how many times I do it, I still kind of think, oh my God, that looks so cool. <laughs> when you actually, when you do the twist and actually see all the scale pop off and you see those little cubes pop out, it just makes, yeah. it gives you the fizz. It's awesome. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'll be, I'll be trying it. Um, Alex will probably do a piece as well and we'll put it up on the Forgecast. And maybe if you're interested... Um, and you can email it, email the image to us. We might even put it on the Forgecast uh, Instagram page ourselves. Um, Get enough of them, we'll... we might do a montage. Exactly. So yeah, um, please feel free to have a go. It's something really simple. It's not that hard. You can look up how to tutorials on uh, YouTube. There are thousands of them, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> uh, Gary Gary Houston did a really good one um, that I know of. 
Um, but yeah, so definitely give that a shot. I really like the idea. Another idea from Alex, because Alex is the ideas man, and I'm just the, the, the beautiful face of this show. That's it. Uh, you know, I've got a face beautiful enough for radio. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful face for podcasts. <laughs> That's it. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to seeing if you guys want to engage with this, and if you think it's a good idea, um, because I would be really keen to keep this going. Yeah. Um, but with that being said, I think we're going to wrap up the show. We're just That's over it. an hour. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to us ramble on. Uh, this is obviously the first episode without our good friend Nils uh, with us. Uh, but you can find him at Nils Ergren and Blacksmith on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and with the YouTubes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yes, uh, from now on, it's just going to be us two. So hopefully you are still enjoying the content and, uh, I'm going to say goodbye. And if you do want to actually ask us a question of your own, uh, feel free to either message us on Facebook or Instagram, or you can email us your question at ask.forgecast at gmail.com. And you can find myself at Valhalla Ironworks on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Etsy, and I still hate myself for saying this, TikTok. And you can find my friend Sam. At Samtown's Bladesmith on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Etsy, Patreon, The Kitchen Sink. You not name it, TikTok. I'm there. <laughs> not TikTok. Yeah, there's a, I'm not on TikTok or Twitter. I don't like things with start with T. That's right. Uh, <laughs> but everyone will be hearing our outro music fading in gently now, and they'll know that it's sad they have to wait another week for the show. Uh, parting is such sweet sorrow. It is. <laughs> See have you later, night, guys. Guy. I hope you have a productive and happy week. Have a fantastic week, guys.